I'm guessing that almost anybody listening to this is passingly familiar with the events that unfolded at Fukushima Daiichi in Japan following the tidal wave that triggered the complete meltdown of three nuclear reactor cores or the explosion at Chernobyl and everything that followed. Older people might even remember Three Mile Island, our very own domestic, potentially disastrous nuclear accident. But what about the Savannah River plant in South Carolina, or the area around Hanford, Washington, or North St. Louis County in Missouri? Do they ring any bells? These were three of our most environmentally devastating and expensive nuclear waste leaks. One of these, uh, Hanford in the state of Washington, is considered to be the most contaminated area in the entire Western Hemisphere. It's where we make plutonium for weapons and where we store the waste products. The nuclear waste from making plutonium is in the form of a liquid and sitting on the Hanford site are 56 million gallons of radioactive waste liquid and it's been estimated that approximately 1 million gallons of this dangerous radioactive liquid has leaked. So far, we, that is you and me, have paid out about $1.4 billion in medical bills for the employees at the Hanford site. We've also spent $2.5 billion every year trying to clean this site up. But as tragic as the events at Hanford have been, that's not really what I want to talk to you about today. No, what I want to talk about today are the other 119 nuclear plants around the country, 98 of which are still producing electricity and 21 of which sit idle. I want to talk to you about plutonium-239, a radioactive element that doesn't actually occur in nature. It's something that has to be man-made and makes up 1% of the 88,000 tons of spent fuel rods that are scattered at these sites across the country. I want to explain to you that this plutonium is lethally radioactive to human beings and will remain so for approximately 240,000 years. That's if we don't add any new plutonium to the stack. But I only want to talk about these matters to give you context so that you can fully understand the enormity of what I'm about to tell you. We have a solution, a permanent ideal solution for the problem of nuclear waste in this country. It's called Yucca Mountain. It's a place in Nevada. It was designed, built and equipped decades ago to permanently store safely all of this country's high-level nuclear waste. Yet today, in 2019, the deep nuclear waste repository at Yucca Mountain contains about as much radiation as the dial on my watch. The harnessing of nuclear power to generate electricity has to be one of mankind's 
most glorious achievements. Nuclear power plants contribute about 20% of the electricity that we consume in this country. Most experts agree that nuclear power is the best short-term solution that we have for meeting our ever-growing energy needs. And while nuclear energy is relatively inexpensive, safe, efficient, and environmentally relatively friendly, it is not sustainable. It's estimated that we probably have 200 to 250 years worth of mineable uranium ore on our planet. But while nuclear power is clearly superior to burning coal and oil for electricity, which is shockingly expensive, inefficient, unsustainable, and poses a serious ongoing threat to the already struggling environment, it's still only a stopgap measure until we can develop the technology and materials to harness a truly sustainable and renewable source of energy for the planet. But for now, it is our best option. The US produces only about 1 60th of the total world yield of mineable uranium. Most of it is actually produced in Kazakhstan, Canada and Australia with Kazakhstan producing some 24,000 of the world yield of 57,000 tons of uranium annually. And what exactly is uranium? It is a naturally occurring metal. It's an element, it has the atomic number 92, and in its natural form, as it's dug out of the mountain, it's very weakly radioactive. The metal itself weighs more than lead, but less than gold. It occurs as a number of different isotopes. Some are unstable and very short-lived, but one particular isotope, uranium-238, is by far the most abundant. But U-238 can't be used as nuclear fuel. And that is because U-238 is not fissionable material which basically means that under normal conditions, the atom will not split. Now, it certainly can split, especially uh, under the conditions found in a nuclear core where bombardment by high-energy neutrons can bring that about. But that is not its a normal state, and therefore it doesn't make a good nuclear fuel. Two other isotopes, however, do make good nuclear fuels, and they are uranium-233 and uranium-235. Uranium-235 is a minor constituent of naturally occurring uranium, making up about 1% of naturally occurring uranium. The radioactivity of a particular isotope can be described by its half-life. This is the amount of time that it takes for one half of the isotope to give off an energetic particle and become a new isotope. So one way you can tell that uranium-238 is not particularly radioactive is that it has a half-life of four and a half billion years. So before naturally occurring uranium can be used as a fuel in a nuclear reactor, the concentration of U-238 relative to the concentrations of U-233 and 235 
needs to decrease until there's approximately 3% of the U-235. But once you achieve that degree of purity, the spontaneous fission of the U-235 isotopes can actually lead to what's called a chain reaction. In a chain reaction, a, an atom of U-235 will spontaneously split and as it does that, a high energy particle is released. And provided that particle isn't moving either too fast or too slow, and if it strikes an adjacent atom, then that atom also will fission with the release of more energetic particles, and on and on and on. In order to control this reaction, the nuclear reactor uses what are called modifiers. Graphite is one such substance, water is another. The modifiers actually slow down these high energy particles, which in turn increases the likelihood that a second fission will occur. Now, once this chain reaction is set in motion, there needs to be a way to shut it off or slow it down and the reactor contains elements called control rods which when they're inserted between adjacent fuel rods the bombardments are blocked and the chain reaction is arrested. Now how in the world does that make electricity? Well the release of these particles and the splitting of the atoms generates a massive amount of energy, not all of which is busy splitting other isotope atoms, and that energy is absorbed by the circulating water that is kept flowing through the reaction chamber. Now that water gets very hot very quickly, and while there are a number of different mechanical ways that the water is uh, contained within the vessel and how it is either converted to steam or left as a hot liquid, it still carries that energy to the turbine room, which is a chamber adjacent to the nuclear reactor where the rapidly expanding superheated steam is converted into mechanical energy by spinning the turbine and then by induction to electricity which passes through massive conductors and onto the power grid. Now there's one other very critical reaction that's taking place in the reactor's core. While these super high energy particles are being released by the splitting of the uranium atoms, some of that energy is going to cause what's known as the transmutation of uranium-238, which results in the creation of an atom of Pu-239, which is plutonium. Let me digress for just a second to explain to you what a fuel rod is, what happens to it in the reactor, and what a spent fuel rod is. A fuel rod itself is basically a long cylinder made up of small cylinders of the uranium metal, which are placed inside another non-reactive metal tube, and these are assembled into groups of 200 or so, and each of these assemblies is placed in a group of about 200 assemblies, and that forms the reactor core. Now, the lifetime of a fuel rod is approximately eight years. That is 
the length of time that the rods will be able to sustain a chain reaction under ideal circumstances. Once the amount of U-235 drops critically low, the chain reaction can no longer be sustained and the reactor will basically stop producing the amount of energy and heat needed to turn the turbine. But at the end of those eight years of active service, there is still a lot going on inside the fuel rod. Spent is a slightly misleading term for a, a used fuel rod because it, while it may not be able to sustain a chain reaction in the reactor, uh, it is still highly radioactive and as I said earlier will remain so for about a quarter of a million years and that's because 1% of the spent fuel rod is now plutonium which has a half-life of 24,000 years. But the spent fuel rods contain more than just 1% plutonium and the rest uranium-238. As a result of all of these atom splittings, the material inside the rods has also changed its composition quite markedly. There will still be about 1% of the highly radioactive uranium-235 but there will also be about 3% of what are known as fission products. So these are new atoms uh, such as uh, cesium, strontium, and iodine, all of which uh, are radioactive in their own right. Now, what's interesting about these fuel rods is that when they can no longer work to drive the nuclear reactor, they're still putting off a great deal of heat because the radioactive components in the spent fuel rod are still generating a lot of high energy particles and putting off a lot of radiation. So once they're done in the reaction chamber, they usually need to spend between 10 and 20 years cooling down in a water bath, basically a tank of, of circulating water. And that will become important in just a minute and the other interesting thing about the decay of the the spent nuclear fuel is that it, it occurs in two different timelines a lot of the highly radioactive material the, the strontium uh, for example will decay very very quickly and give off a lot of energy and that's why the rods need to be kept in this circulating water bath long enough for those half-lives to play out and for the amount of uh, radiation produced to decrease to the point that they're not going to be dangerously uh, overheating when they're taken out of the cool water bath. But all of that heating is coming from only the most radioactive, the shortest half-life atoms in the fuel rod. There are seven other types of atom in the fuel rod with half-lives in the hundreds of thousands of years that will be there producing dangerous radiation into the distant future. 
So once the amount of heat being generated by the spent fuel drops to manageable levels, then the rods can be transferred from this circulating water tank and placed in these gargantuan metal and concrete containers where they will be stored temporarily until they can be moved to a permanent burial site one to one and a half thousand feet underground. But that last step isn't happening. And that's what I want to talk to you about. To give you some idea of the kind of energy that we're talking about here, a one kilo, a two pound block of uranium-235, theoretically, would be able to produce the same amount of electricity as 1.5 million kilograms of coal. That's how much energy is locked in this metal. And this metal is sitting in spent fuel rods covered in concrete and wrapped in heavy steel containers. Containers that contain radioactive material that will maintain the capacity to kill human beings for between 100 and 800,000 years. And these containers are sitting out in the open in some cases some are housed in shallow bunkers and others are just sitting exposed to the elements. There are 22,000 tons of spent nuclear fuel sitting basically on the beach in Southern California. The reactor plant responsible for generating this spent fuel is the San Onofre plant, which sits midway between San Diego and Los Angeles and it is literally separated from the Pacific Ocean by a small beach. So let me remind you that metal rusts and over time becomes stressed and can break from fatigue. Concrete also is far from indestructible. The fuel rods inside these sarcophagi are hot and they're producing gases, helium mostly. And pressure is building up inside of each of these, these containment vessels. They're exposed to the elements, in some cases to salt water. They're exposed to fluctuating temperatures. In the case of the San Onofre nuclear plant, it is actually sitting on a fault line in Southern California waiting for an earthquake, presumably. And how long will it be before a seabed earthquake throws a tidal wave over San Onofre? And if these natural threats aren't alarming enough, what about the vulnerability of these temporary storage sites to foreign or domestic terrorism, to bombing during wartime? And San Onofre is by no means our most vulnerable site. After all, there are 119 of them scattered around the country. And each of them has spent fuel rods stacked up and waiting for disaster. So why is all of this profoundly deadly material 
sitting on the surface of our land and not buried a thousand, two thousand feet in solid rock where it will be permanently safe from these kinds of threats. Why? To answer that, we need to go back to 1957, the year before I was born. Recognizing that high-level nuclear waste was going to be a serious problem for this country, the National Academy of Science studied the problem and they determined, and this has never been refuted, that the only safe way to secure nuclear waste is by interring it deep underground in solid rock. But it would be another 25 years before the United States Congress passed the Nuclear Waste Policy Act of 1982, in which they specified that it was to be the responsibility of the Department of Energy to find, build, and manage a deep underground facility. In 1985, three years later, the Department of Energy had a short list of three potential sites. They started out with hundreds of potential sites. The sites under consideration were adjacent to nuclear plants in Hanford, Washington, Deaf Smith County, Texas, and Yucca Mountain, Nevada. But by 1987, and after a great deal of additional geologic work, the other two were removed from consideration. And it was determined that the Yucca Mountain, Nevada site, adjacent to a nuclear weapons testing site, incidentally, was not only the best available site on the North American continent, it was quite literally the perfect site for the permanent storage of high-level nuclear waste. The Nuclear Waste Policy Act that was originally passed in 1982 was amended in 1987 to specify Yucca Mountain, Nevada as the repository that will be used for North American nuclear waste. In 2002, George W. Bush ordered the Department of Energy to begin operations at Yucca Mountain and to start storing high-level nuclear waste there immediately. By 2006, the preparations had been completed and the Department of Energy set March 31st of 2007 to be the day on which waste would begin being accepted at the Yucca Mountain facility. Everything was in place. However, in the 2006 midterm election, Senator Harry Reid, the Democratic uh, Senator from Nevada, became the Senate Majority Leader. And he was quoted as saying in that first year of his term, Yucca Mountain is dead. It'll never happen. And from that time until his retirement, Harry Reid has never let up on his commitment to do anything in his power to prevent the Yucca Mountain site from being used. And Reed was not the only one committed to blocking the opening of, of this important site. Many local and non-local citizens groups, in addition to activist uh, organizations around the state and the region, 
and even the Western Shoshone people organized and lobbied to prevent the opening of the site. But unfortunately, none of these protesting groups were able to put forward better suggestions. Indeed, Harry Reid stands out from the rest in displaying his willful ignorance about the nature of the problem. He has spoken publicly that the best solution for the management of nuclear fuel waste around the country is to leave the stuff where it is. Just let the individual states, the individual sites deal with it. And that is not only a bad idea, it is quite possibly the worst idea. Aside from the one idea another senator brought forward suggesting that we put the stuff in rockets and launch it into space. But for Reed to actively block the utilization of this ideal and safe site requires him to basically ignore scientific consensus entirely. And in so doing, show his hand that this is political. And whatever self-serving aims were fueling his belligerent obstinacy, one concern that he didn't appear to have was the safety of the population of North America. And so these rusting and deteriorating time bombs sit scattered all over the face of this country, waiting for a disaster. So what is being done to resolve this problem? And what is the status of nuclear waste storage in this country today? Well, it's not good. The current administration stopped funding research of possible alternative sites to Yucca Mountain. This Congress has cut all funding to the Department of Energy for the licensing activities at Yucca Mountain, essentially guaranteeing that this very real existential risk to the people of the country continues. However, the law, the one that was passed in 1982 and amended to specify Yucca as the site for high-level nuclear waste disposal in 1985, remains the law of the land. When this law was written, the government entered into a binding legal contract with the nuclear power plants across the country that Yucca Mountain would be the repository for their high-level nuclear waste. And because our politicians have defaulted on this contract, the government is using taxpayer money to pay off massive yearly settlements to these power stations. It is estimated that between 2015 and 2025, that bill is going to come to $24 billion. That's money that we are paying because our government is not using the facility that was deemed the most appropriate and safest place to store hazardous nuclear waste in this country. And what about the money that has already been put into the Yucca Mountain site? We have paid $15 billion over the last 30 years to prepare Yucca Mountain to receive high-level nuclear waste. 
$15 billion. And the waste just continues to accumulate. We're not looking for an alternative. We're not looking for a political solution to use the site that is legally designated, fully built, completely paid for, and the single most ideal site anywhere in the country. What are we waiting for? An earthquake? A terrorist bomb? For San Onofre to get washed into the Pacific Ocean? How many American deaths will it take before our leaders start doing their jobs? Because the only other alternative is for us to keep our fingers crossed. And keep them crossed until all the plutonium stacked up in all the leaky, cracked, concrete time bombs around this country have decayed to harmlessness. And that's 250,000 years. Good night.